Whether you have a general interest in health and wellness, or you are already a medical professional, we're here to provide you with tools and resources to make informed decisions about your health. This is House Call, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Here, our expert providers will provide you with wellness tips, information, and general health advice. Thank you for listening. When the weather outside is frightful, a visit to the emergency room is not so delightful. That's why I've brought in Dr. Michael Egan, Medical Director of the Emergency Department at Raritan Bay Medical Center. Welcome. Glad to be here. I'm so happy you joined. And for all of, all of those listening and tuning in today, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Let's walk through some scenarios that may land you in the ER this winter and tips to avoid them. How about the flu? You know, let's just jump right into it. I read a report that estimated the flu has resulted in between 140,000 and 710,000 hospitalizations per year since 2010. That's quite the range. And why is this? What most people don't realize is you've probably never had the flu. What you've had is a cold that you've called the flu. Uh, Influenza A and influenza B, are um, they happen to be very virulent organisms. Um, When you get infected with influenza, you literally feel like you're dying. It's Um, the worst. It is. It's horrible. When you tell somebody it's the flu, they don't believe you, even though you come back and you show that the nasal swab antigen that we did is positive for either influenza A or B. What are some of the symptoms of the flu and why are they so severe? Well, um, one of the things I also wanted to talk about was transmission. So this is a very important thing. So um, obviously getting your flu vaccine is the best way to prevent getting the flu. Uh, The other thing that most people don't realize is good hand hygiene. The way the flu is actually spread is um, through two uh, major means. Uh, The first is usually among close family and friends. You cough or sneeze and the droplets are actually transmitted that way. Um, the rest of us typically come in contact with somebody who had the flu. We don't even realize it because they sneezed into their hand and then opened up a doorknob. And then you opened that doorknob uh, right after them. And most of us don't realize we touch our face hundreds of times a day. So you actually inoculate yourself that way. And don't the symptoms take a few days to kind of start to show as well? About one to four days after exposure, you'll start to come down with the symptoms. And, And typically what they are is a fever. Um, it's one of the only organisms that causes a very high fever in adults. Most adults, you kind of top off in the 102, 103 range. You can actually have adults get up to 104 with the flu. That's frightening. And for children as well, or is it a little different? Children actually can go higher. Uh, it's not uncommon to see a child with a 106 uh, temperature, uh, secondary to influenza. Um, Now, this is the thing that makes you come to the emergency department. You have severe body aches. We call them myalgias. You usually have a horrendously bad headache. Um, You'll also go ahead and start to have a cough. Many, many people have a very bad sore throat with it. They're convinced they have a strep infection. Um, And then obviously just congestion and runny nose. Do that many people really not get the flu shot? Um, A lot of people don't get it because there's this misnomer that you actually get the flu from getting the vaccine. Um, A lot of other people are also right now, um, because of a lot of the misinformation that's out there, scared of of vaccines in general. Uh, So 
I get, I have now been 20 years getting the flu vaccine, um, and I've never actually come down with the flu, and that's including during the last pandemic in 2009, 2010. Now, does the flu affect certain age groups or demographics more than others, or is it kind of an equal playing field? It's an equal playing field. Um, the problem that we have with the flu um, is in people that are older, people that are very young, um, and then people who have chronic uh, medical illnesses. Uh, they're the ones that actually run into the complications that we see with the flu. Um, a lot of times it's those complications that wind up causing the flu fatalities. Let's move away a little bit from, you know, the influenza and other illnesses and kind of move towards more environmentally impacted things. We all know about severe winds and extremely freezing temperatures. Let's kind of talk about hypothermia and frostbite. Now, what is the difference between the two? Well, the difference is um, hypothermia is a lowering of your body's core temperature below 95 degrees Fahrenheit, um, whereas frostbite is a localized injury uh, to an exposed part of the body. And what exactly causes this? Again, it's exposure to the extremely yes. low temperatures. So typically what we do is both of these um, will be seen in the homeless. Uh, they'll be seen in members of the military who happen to be out for hours upon hours. People who work outside. Everybody knows the mountaineers. Everybody's seen the pictures of people that come back from Everest missing pieces of their nose or their fingers. Um, it's that exposure with inadequate protection from the cold um, that causes both of these. Um, with frostbite, um, the big problem that you have is it's actually ice forms in the tissues. Um, and then that's what causes the damage that eventually leads to the death of the cells. Hypothermia is a little more insidious. Um, so what happens is you don't even realize it's occurring. Um, you're exposed to the cold. Um, all of a sudden, you may slowly get confused. Um, you'll start to notice that you're getting colder, you're shivering more. Um, if you don't respond to that and get out of that exposure, you actually then will become more confused and may wind up actually losing consciousness and dying. Wow. Yes. Now, what are some of the proper precautions? I, I know you said bundling up, but how bundled up does one actually have to be? So the first thing that you want to do is limit your time in the cold as much as possible. Um, one of the other things is to obviously dress in layers. We always say that. The reason we say that is if you start to notice that you're beginning to get hot and sweat, you can take one of the layers off um, because you really don't want to have um, your body es essentially covered in sweat in the cold because that may accelerate the process later on. Um, the other thing you want to do is adequately hydrate. Um, if you're going to be out for hours at a time, you need to take in calories because shivering burns thousands of calories over hours. But really, the big thing is don't go out unless you have to, especially in extreme cold. Say you've been outside shoveling, you weren't really wearing adequate clothing, and you feel that your body is completely just freezing. You run back inside of the house. Would you advise dunking your hands or whatever affected body parts in hot water, or is that kind of counterproductive? That's very counterproductive. Um, you may actually cause a burn because you may not even realize that you've decreased the sensation in your hands. You could put your hands in actually uh, near boiling water. 
Um, and then you look down and you realize that you now have a thermal burn on top of the hypothermia you were suffering from. The best way to rewarm is you get into a warm environment. Um, if you have any wet clothing on, you take that off, you dry off, you put on dry clothing, um, and then start to intake um, hot beverages, hot food, and that will very quickly rewarm you. And when is it warranted to actually go to an ER? Um, so if you're noticing when you look down at your hand that your hand looks like a wax figure's hand, you're in the initial stages of frostbite. Um, if you go in and you inadequately treat that, so in other words, you instead of putting it in warm water, you put it in hot water, you could actually accelerate the cell death. So if you notice that your fingers are turning purple, um, if you're noticing your hand has a very waxy appearance, um, I would advise getting out of the cold, uh, start some passive rewarming. Once again, if the hand is uh, wet, dry it off, get something that's uh, warm and dry on it, um, and then go to the emergency department to just get evaluated to make sure that you don't have frostbite. Got it. Thank you. You're welcome. We also mentioned burns a little bit, so I think this is a good transition. And I kind of wanted to bring to the listeners' attentions the the harm and potential danger of space heaters and, you know, bumping into them and getting a burn. So have you ever actually personally seen that in your experience at the ER? No, I haven't seen any space heater burns. Um, what I can say is don't use them. They're way too dangerous to use. Um I actually went back and looked at some statistics, and I did not realize how truly dangerous space heaters were until I started seeing the last numbers. And the last numbers that they have published are from 2014. In that year, they caused 55,000 house fires with 460 deaths and 1,500 major burn injuries. Wow. Yes. So my advice to everybody is don't use them. If you're going to use them, plug them into their own outlet, nothing else in that outlet. Make sure children and pets stay away from them. Uh, make sure you have a three-foot safety zone around them where there's nothing flammable in that area. Um, but if you do get burnt, um, the most important thing to do is remove any clothing from that area. Um, if you have on any jewelry, get the jewelry off. Um, and then under cool, not cold water, but cool water, um, for about five minutes, start to run the water on there to neutralize the temperature. Um, anybody who has a more severe burn, there's probably been a serious house fire, um, in which case EMS will most likely be there as well. Um, if you have any question about whether this is a minor burn or severe burn, um, I always tell people to come to the emergency department. I'm still fixated on those statistics. That's incredibly startling. I was in shock. Um, the la they haven't compiled the statistics past that year yet, but what they're going by now is percentage. Um, and almost half of the house fires in the United States are caused by space heaters. All right, so let's flip the spectrum now and go kind of to ice and snow-related injuries and mm -hmm. things that could also land you in the ER. So slips and falls, do you see that? Is that common? Very. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers a few years back we had uh, an ice storm in the state. Um, yes. And I think during that day, the emergency department I happened to work at at that time, um, we saw about, and I'm not exaggerating, 60 people who fractured their wrists or their ankles. So um, obviously, if you're going to prevent slips and falls, the one thing you want to do is don't go out unless you have to. 
Um, in the winter, especially, that's a common theme that you'll see everywhere. Um, best way to prevent injury or accident is don't go out unless it's necessary. Um, if you are going to go out, uh, the big thing is trying to wear no-slip uh, shoes, especially boots that have a good tread. Um, try to walk on areas that have been cleared of snow or ice and are salted. I know I'm quite the klutz, and anybody listening who knows me would definitely agree. And I have bumps and bruises scattered throughout my body. How do you know that a fall is, again, severe enough to really land you in the ER? Um, it's pretty simple. Um, so one of the first things you want to look for is a deformity. So in other words, prior to the fall, you didn't have a bump in the area that there is now this huge bump that looks like you have another elbow or another knee. <laughs> um, if it all of a sudden just blows up, like somebody put an orange under your skin, those are all indications that there may be something that's broken underneath that area. Um, severe pain. Um, and then obviously, it, it's a very simple thing. Um, we use them in the emergency department for knee and ankle injuries. Uh, they're called the Ottawa rules. Essentially, if you cannot bear weight on your legs for three steps, then you may actually have broken one of the bones in your leg. Uh, also, with your upper extremities, if you can't use the extremity, there's a very good chance that there may be a fracture there. Uh, so if you notice those that excessive swelling, a new bump where there was never a bump before, um, or you can't ambulate or use the limb, those are all indications you should probably come in to get evaluated. Another type of fall that I wanted to talk about was people who may be on a ladder hanging up, you know, holiday decorations. Do you also happen to see that in the emergency room? <sighs> Typically, depending on how higher up you are, you may actually be taken directly to a trauma center. Um, when you fall from about a 20-foot height, uh, for children, if you fall um, more than two times their actual height, uh, the chances that you have a serious traumatic injury go up exponentially. So if you're on the roof of a house, um, we'll typically see people like that. And the reason we're going to see them is um, those signs that I just told everybody about, um, you're probably going to have one of them, and they'll usually come in. Um, one of the things that you want to do is if you are going to get up in a ladder and hang lights like I used to when I was younger, <laughs> um, you want to make sure that you leave yourself enough time. Don't rush. If it means you've got to go up and down the ladder dozens of times, do it. Don't do that little extra reach out there because you're going to fall. I also kind of wanted to touch on car accidents and driving in the snow and icy weather. What advice do you have for people that have to drive? Say you have some kind of job, you know, we work in healthcare, people mm -hmm. have to go to the hospital. So what advice do you have for people who have to go on the road in certain, you know, extreme conditions? If you're going to go in and you have to drive in the ice and snow, um, you have to realize that your chance of getting in a motor vehicle accident actually just went up a lot. Um, I think it was one out of every five accidents occurs uh, in the United States during ice and snow events. Um, but there's some very simple tips. Give yourself a lot of extra time. Drive slowly and at a constant speed. Um, leave yourself about a five to six second gap between you and the car in front of you. Um, accelerate and decelerate slowly. Uh, don't do a jackrabbit start or a jackrabbit <laughs> stop. Uh, and then one of the things that I didn't even think of um, when I was uh, going ahead and preparing for this podcast is prior to the snowstorm, 
check your brakes and check your tires to make sure they have the air pressure that's recommended. Um, the air pressure that's recommended is kind of designed into the braking system uh, to get the car to stop. Um, and then the, the big thing is stay alert. Get off your phone. Um, don't play with uh, the navigation system. Don't eat a sandwich as you're driving. Just drive while you're doing it. Or a that. bowl of soup, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, what about those people who don't necessarily always shovel off or de-ice their cars? Can that pose a threat to other people on the road? Yes. Actually, I think it's illegal in the state of New Jersey to not fully clean your car off. What can happen is the roof of your car's snow may actually form into a block of ice. So you always run the risk of actually breaking the windshield of the car behind you. Um, but more importantly, you're going to blind that car for a few seconds. And once they clear, the traffic may have stopped. So the if you don't clear your car and the snow comes off your roof onto the car behind you, they may wind up hitting you. That's frightening. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of it, but I, you're right. I did read an article about that, that that's now illegal. So that's yes. kudos. <laughs> I also kind of wanted to touch on shoveling, and I read something that I wasn't sure if it was true, so I wanted to kind of run it by your expert opinion. By shoveling, do you run the risk of impacting your heart in a negative way? Um, not in a negative way. Um, actually, snow shoveling is excellent exercise. Um, I was reading somewhere, I think it's, they said it's like running 100-yard sprints over and over again. Um, but the problem that you have is if you have pre-existing coronary artery disease or you don't know that you have coronary artery disease because you haven't started to get symptoms yet, um, it's essentially you're giving yourself a stress test on your driveway. Uh, oh. So it causes a, a huge in, uh, impact on your blood pressure um, and then the output that the heart has to do uh, to actually get the shoveling done. I saw that the BBC posted some kind of research database-driven article that um, – every year 100 people die from shoveling who have pre-existing heart yes. conditions. So it's we've been running that pretty consistently in this country as well. About 100 people a year die from going out to shovel the snow. So what are some signs if you're shoveling that you may, you know, you should stop? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's one of the things that I that I wanted to also bring up is um, even if you don't have heart disease, what you should do is warm up before you go out, do a little stretching, do maybe do some jumping jacks, get your body ready to go shovel. Your neighbors uh, might look at you crazy, but it's okay. Or you can do it inside. Yeah, you can do it inside. <laughs> um, but one of the things that you're going to look for is if you start to have chest pain, if you start to notice that you're having difficulty breathing, uh, if you start to get very lightheaded, what you really need to do is stop and call 911. Don't go lay on your couch. Don't go, oh, let me go take some antacids. That's a sign that you may actually be having the beginnings of a heart attack and you really should be evaluated as soon as possible. And the last thing that I wanted to touch on was kind of winter-related sports injuries. I know myself last year, I said, you know what, I'm going to try out snowboarding. And I was, again, clumsy, miserable at it. I was knocking children over. It was awful. And I really hurt myself. Um, so what are some precautions that you can take when you're either snowboarding, skiing, ice skating, et cetera, just to really make sure that your health is at the forefront? Um, pretty simple. Uh, first thing you want to do is you want to stretch before you go. Um, obviously dress warmly um, because if you're coming down a mountain and it's 20 degrees out, you're also going to be adding a wind chill factor to everything. Um, if you're going to ski or, or snowboard, you really should think about wearing a helmet 
um, children that are ice skating really should be wearing a helmet. Um, one of the things snowboarders don't realize is skiing injuries and snowboarding injuries are kind of different. Um, skiers, usually it's going to be lower extremity injuries. Uh, snowboarders, it's usually head injuries and upper ex- uh, uh, extremity injuries. Mine was definitely my wrist. Yeah. Trying to break the fall. <laughs> yeah. You kind of, your legs go out and you kind of fall onto your back. Um, but one of the things you really want to do is don't exceed your limits. Um, if you're not a double black diamond skier, don't go today is the day if you've <laughs> only been doing the bunny trails. Um, the other thing is once you start to feel that you're getting a little tired, stop. Don't put the extra run in because what's going to happen is as you get fatigued, your form breaks down and that's when you're going to get hurt. Were there any other situations that you kind of wanted to discuss or you see that people? Yes. And um, related to shoveling snowblowers. Oh, I didn't even think about that. So you run this, they've been doing studies, you run the same risk of people who have coronary artery disease of having a heart attack pushing the snowblower. Yes, a lot of them don't have motors where they're actually pulling the uh, uh, the wheels forward, uh, Some uh, like some of the, the newer um, uh, push lawnmowers. Um, but they were doing a lot of studies on that, and there, there's an equal risk there. But snow, uh, snowblowers pose a, a challenge that I have seen um, during my over two decades in the emergency department, and that's hand injuries. Um, people reach into the blower to unclog it. When they don't realize is the, ga- uh, the gears are engaged. So as soon as that little chunk of ice that was keeping them from moving mo- is taken out, the gears actually move again and your finger happens to be there. I'm cringing. Yes. So one of the things you want to do is if the snow blower gets clogged, it's very simple. Turn it off. Wait a minute or two. Take a stick or a, now a lot of snow blowers come with a little tool to clear the clogs. Use that tool to clear the clogs. Once again, saving those two minutes, you know, in, in the task that you're doing isn't worth losing fingers. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, w- I honestly would have never thought about that. Yeah, snowblowers are the bane of the emergency department during snowstorms. We, I have literally seen every snowstorm I've worked, at least one to two hand injuries that have resulted in amputations um, in, in over two decades. Well, thank you for kind of breaking down what to do in case you do face that, you know, it's clogged. What do mm-hmm. I do? Yep. So thank you so much, Dr. Egan, for joining me today. And I hope that everybody listening now knows how to have a very happy but healthy holiday season. Thank you. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. That's all for today. Until next Wednesday, thanks for listening. All participants on the Health You podcast have willingly and openly shared their stories. They have not been paid or incentivized for sharing. The views expressed by our guests solely belong to them and are not necessarily aligned with Hackensack Meridian Health.